Well, good morning. If you've got a Bible, if you would turn to Joshua chapter 5, please. Uh, Joshua 5, as we continue our study through uh, this book this summer. Uh, let's pray and then open it up. Uh, Father, uh, we thank you that, that though you are a God who is above us, you inspired your word so that we could know who you are. So we could know your character, so we could know your holiness, so we could know our true need. Thank you that beyond that, you didn't just speak about these things, but then you acted and you met our need with your cross. You diagnosed us with your law, you cured us with your gospel. And we pray that today as your people, you would help us to realign our lives in response to you and who you are and the fact that you are uh, far above us. Help us to see more of your nature and more of your character in the scripture today. And I pray that you'd help us to be people who respond to it, who live like these things are true. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, anytime we open up the Bible, this is a book that we believe was inspired by God. Uh, we're, we're opening a book that was given to us primarily so that we could know some things that we wouldn't know otherwise, mainly specifics about who God is and what God is like. And we can learn a lot about God by looking at his creation, but specifics about his character and nature and purpose and plan and the gospel of Jesus Christ required there to be a written word so that we could know him. And so anytime we read the Bible, we want to be asking ourselves the question, what does this tell me about God? Who is he? What, what is he telling me about himself here? That's the primary purpose that this was given to us. And so at this point in the story, Joshua is leading the people into the land that God had promised, into the land of Canaan. God had promised this land to the nation of Israel 400 years earlier, but now it was time for them to go in and finally claim this promise. So they've crossed over the Jordan River, and now they're facing the walled city of Jericho. It was the strong city in the region. It was a walled city. It was fortified heavily. And their strategy was going to be that they would take out that city, and it was kind of the center of the Death Star. So if they could, could take that out, then the rest of the region would, would fall. So they're about to see a huge victory as they go in to take the city of Jericho, and, and not to spoil the ending or anything, but the walls come tumbling down at the end. So, so they do win this. But in this account, we learn an awful lot of what God is like and, and how we're supposed to react when God reveals himself to us. So Joshua is about to lead them into this victory, but before Joshua is going to lead them into this miraculous victory in Jericho, Joshua had to be prepared. Um, a pattern that you see a few times in the book of Joshua is that before God works mightily through his people, he works mightily on his people. They have to be properly aligned with him and his purposes. And this is often true for us. Often before God uses us to accomplish some of his purposes, he molds us, he shapes us first, he humbles us, he prepares us, he teaches us, he puts us in our place through all kinds of circumstances. And so if you're going through days like that, don't despise those days when God is humbling and shaping and teaching through all kinds of circumstances. They're often the preparation for the next place that he's going to be leading us. So God's about to use Joshua. He's going to use him to lead the people in mighty ways, just like he did Moses before him. God will do a work through Joshua, but first he's going to do this work on Joshua. So Joshua 5.13 says, When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us? or for our adversaries. So Joshua looks up and all of a sudden, right in front of him, there's a guy with a sword drawn, a guy who's ready for battle. And so Joshua asks him the question that we all might ask a guy who just showed up in front of us with a sword in his hand, are you on my team? 
Are you on team Israel or are you on team Jericho? This is an important question because you're right there and, and you have a sword. And, and look at the guy's response. Joshua gives him his two options. Are you on my team or are you on those guys' teams? And in verse 14 it says, and he said, no. <laughs> Neither one. I, I am not on either of those teams. He doesn't accept the two categories that Joshua gives him. He doesn't accept that he has to choose one of these two sides. This is kind of like when, when the kids ask, uh, can we have candy or can we have cake for dinner? No, like I didn't agree to your categories. I didn't agree to your options. And because I kind of outrank you, I actually don't have to. I don't have to choose one of the two choices that you give me. And so this guy in the way he responds to Joshua is making clear that he outranks Joshua. He's above Joshua. He's not going to go into one of the two lanes that Joshua gives him to go into. So whoever this mysterious man is, he is not going to fit neatly into Joshua's categories. He isn't going to let Joshua decide which of, which of those two lanes he should be in because he is above all. And you see this more as we see a little bit more of who he is. He says, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped him and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy and Joshua did so. So this guy is the commander of the army of the Lord. He's God in human form, what's called a Christophany, where Jesus shows up before the birth of Jesus. And we know that this is God right there in front of Joshua because Joshua worships him, and the guy doesn't tell him not to. I mean, in the Bible, when you see people worshiping other good people, those good people say, no, don't do that. You see in the book of Acts, where they actually tear their clothes and say, don't worship us, we're people just like you are. You see it in the book of Revelation where people bow down to worship angels and the angels say, don't do it. You don't worship us. But here, Joshua bows down to worship this commander of the army of the Lord and the guy accepts the worship. It's right for him to worship him. And so this is God showing up. You don't worship angels, you don't worship people, you worship God. Joshua worships this guy and he accepts that worship. Next, he tells Joshua to take off your sandals because the place where you're standing is holy ground. If you were with us a few years ago, we walked through the book of Exodus. And at the beginning of the book of Exodus, God appears to Moses in the burning bush. And when Moses draws near, he says, take off your sandals because where you're standing right here, this is holy ground. So what's going on here is that Moses had been commissioned to lead the Israelites then. And now Joshua, in the same way, is being commissioned to lead the Israelites the God who was holy then is holy now. The God who told Moses to take his sandals off is telling Joshua to take his sandals off. And, and before Joshua will lead the people, he needs to have this encounter with God. And if God is holy, God's transcendent and powerful and mighty and true, then we don't ask him to get on our side. We ask how we might get on his and this is one of the most important aspects of what it means to live the Christian life. Because so often in our day, if we believe in a God at all, we have a God who is essentially dead. He has no real authority in our day-to-day -day lives. He has no authority to tell me who I am because I make myself whoever I want myself to be. And then, then I invite God if he wants to kind of jump on board with that. He has no authority over my identity, no authority over my money, no authority over my bedroom. No authority over what I call my truth. 
no authority over my marriage, no authority over how I spend my time, because the little God that we serve, if we serve one at all, really just exists for me. That it's his job to fit into my plan. It's his job to fit into my categories, into the lanes that I give him. His plans have to revolve around me. And so often you even see it uh, in church, and you'll see it even in our sermon emphases, where, where the themes are, here's how God can help us be what we had already planned on being. Here's how God helps me with my marriage. Here's how God helps me with my relationships, with my anxiety, with, with my ongoing self-help project. And he certainly does help with all of those things, but we treat him like he exists to help us accomplish all the things we were already trying to accomplish. That God exists mainly for me. And we don't realize how pervasive this is, but, but this is so often how we treat God even in church. I mean, think about how we evaluate a worship service when we leave. The questions we ask so often are just like all about me. We, we ask ourselves the question, what did that do for me? Was, was I sufficiently greeted? Was the music to my liking? Did I get all the right feelings? So we evaluate even our worship like it exists first and foremost for us. And this is supposed to be the sanest hour of the week when we reorient all of our purposes and, and reshift our focus so that we can give worship to the one place that it rightly should go, which is to God himself, but still we'll turn in a worship service into an environment that's supposed to be all about me, and we turn it into a me-centered experience. So we have a very, very little God, a God who's supposed to help us fulfill our plans. You even hear it in the way that we present God to, to the world around us, where the message of, of the contemporary church to the world is not repent from what you were following and follow Jesus, trust in him and what he's done for you on the cross, receive his love and his mercy there, follow him with your life. The, the message of the church to the world around is just to try, try God. Try him. He, he isn't this transcendent, category-shattering, sovereign over all God of the Bible. He's more like an herbal remedy that your hippie friend recommended and couldn't hurt to try. He's really, really small. So he's great for us when he seems to help. He's great when worship generates the right emotions. But inevitably, soon enough, those feelings go away. The singing starts to feel hollow, feels fake very quickly. Because that God who exists as acute help for all of my projects really isn't worth singing about. But to come to God is to come, as he introduces himself here in verse 14, to the captain of the army of the Lord. And it's to bow and to worship. Because God isn't about to obey us, we obey him. God doesn't submit to what we call our truths, we submit to, to the truth. We don't get him on our side. We're called to get on his. We don't start by developing our values, coming to our positions on issues, discovering our truth, forming our identity, and then saying, okay, well, God, let me, let me show you ways that you can get on my side. Instead, we come to him and worship him first and foremost. And this is something to be aware of, that, that over the last couple hundred years, there has been a massive shift in culture where at one point the ultimate frame of reference that everybody had was that there was some kind of God and some kind of absolute moral law out there. It's certainly not that everybody was Christians or anything like that, but even most atheists a couple hundred years ago agreed that there was some kind of universal law, some kind of universal right and wrong. 
And we argued about what that law was, we argued about what right and wrong was, but we were all appealing to this higher authority that we all had the sense that was out there. We all had the sense that there was an ultimate truth to discover. But now we've had this shift to where there is no frame of reference above each individual. James K.A. Smith says that in this world, God is dead, but he's replaced by everybody else. And so now it's my preferences and my feelings and my attitudes that are the ultimate moral guides in my life. And, and once you see it, you can't unsee it. It's all around us. I mean, we believe that, that I am not who God says I am, but whoever I feel I am. My identity is not given to me from God. It's something determined by me. I'm the new God in town. I believe that something is wrong, not because there's a moral absolute, but it's only wrong if it feels wrong to me. Truth is what I feel it to be. In the old catechism in defining what people's purpose is, it said that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But now it's like we've said that the chief end of God is to make me feel good. And my chief end, my purpose, is whatever I want it to be. So in this God is dead world, it isn't a world with, with no God. It's a world where everybody becomes their own God. Everybody does what's right in their own eyes. Where I am, whoever I feel that I am in this world, I don't have any higher frame to appeal to. I don't go to the scriptures to learn who I am. I decide who I am based on how I feel, and everybody has to agree with my assessment. That's kind of the system of the world we're living in, and if you feel like Christianity just doesn't fit in that world, you're right. Like, it doesn't fit in that system. It is a whole different religion. It is a whole different worldview. Because to encounter God truly causes a realignment where we conform to his system, where we don't demand that he conform to ours. I mean, that's what it means that he is our God. He becomes our ultimate he becomes that ultimate frame of reference. So Joshua runs into God and he asks him, which of these two teams do you want to be on? Which of these two teams are you on? The guy says, no, neither one of those. And then Joshua is realigned. And so now that Joshua's realigned, it's time for the battle of Jericho. God's going to do his work. He's brought Joshua into alignment with him. He's gotten Joshua on the side of what he's going to do. And this would be a huge work of God because the city of Jericho was tough. Chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. That'll be an important detail in a few minutes, so just kind of keep that in the back of your head for now. But, but just remember that the city was shut up. It was fortified. The gates on the outside were closed and sealed. Inside, the homes were closed and sealed. It was walled city, closed with gates. Every home inside was locked down. The city is on total lockdown. Nobody's getting in. Nobody's getting out. Um, so chapter 6, verse 2. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. 
So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let the seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward. March around the city and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets. The rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, you shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out from your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to encircle the city, going about it once, and they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp, so they did for six days. And not to get lost in the weeds here, but, but God's prescription for them to take this city doesn't make sense. Remember, this is a strong city. It's got walls. It's filled with mighty men of valor in verse 2. And God tells them, here's your strategy for taking it. Walk around the city and blow trumpets. So we're supposed to get the sense that this is futile for Israel. They've got walls and a great army. Israel brings a tired, depleted army out of the woods and marches around with trumpets. So this is a David and Goliath story before there were David and Goliath. The, the Israelite army can't win this on their own. So we might think, well, this is going to be a clash of two great military mights, Jericho versus Israel. But in reality, this is the military might of Jericho versus Professor Hill's cruddy marching band. Like that, that's the war that, that's being set, the stage is being set for that battle for us. And this strategy is not one of military brilliance at all. There really isn't much of a battle of Jericho. But in the center of all of it is the Ark of the Covenant. That's the place where God's presence went with his people. So the people are weak, but God's with them. They have trumpets, which aren't great weapons, and, and they have to march around silently without saying a word, just blaring those trumpets. And they march around that city blaring the trumpets every day for six days. Not surprisingly, nothing happened, but God was there. You know, there are a bunch of pseudo-scientific videos floating around trying to describe how it was that the Israelites actually got those walls to fall. And, and basically, the implication in those videos is that they, they had actually figured some stuff out. They'd figured out some military technology. They had fi figured out sonic weapons. And so this making the walls fall could actually happen because these Israelites were so smart. Um, this story actually got a spot on Ancient Aliens on History Channel, and, um, and they said that, that the Israelites were given a power by an ancient race of aliens that they carried around in the Ark of the Covenant, and that superpower amplified that sound going through the ram's horns to just the right degree that it caused those walls to fall down flat. Seems legit. And so, so that was that story. But all these stories are looking for a way. Well, how was it that Israel was strong enough to do this? But the point of this story is that Israel wasn't strong enough to do this. They couldn't. God did this. 
Ultimately, it was God going with his people that caused them to win. It was God that fought the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. It wasn't their superior military. It wasn't their superior technology. It was God and his presence with his people allowing them to receive the fulfillment of his plan. So verse 15. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of the day and they marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that's within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord and they shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So he says, you don't get to take the stuff that, that goes into the Lord's treasury. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat. So that the people went into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen and sheep and donkeys with the edge of the sword. So despite their meager strategy, because God was with them when they blew the trumpets, the walls came tumbling down and they took the city. But I don't wanna to move too quickly past this in this, this passage and ignore some of the hard questions that people ask about this text because it's this passage and a lot of other passages like it that are the reason that the Old Testament is so hard for so many people. Because the God here seems so different from the God of the New Testament. I mean, look what he's ordering them to do. He, he's ordering them to carry out this violent and bloody conquest. He's telling them to wipe out this city. So how do we explain that? How do we explain that God would do this? Well, there are a few things to draw out. Number one, first of all, the Bible has, has been clear that God had been patient with the people in Canaan for 400 years before executing a just judgment. Remember, it was 400 years before this that God went to Abraham and said, I'm going to give you that promised land. You can go in and you can take it. But then he said, but you can't do it yet. In Genesis 15, 16, he says, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And the Amorites, it's the generic name for the groups of people that lived in that land. And God said, you're going to have that land, you're going to take that land, but you can't take it yet because the people aren't bad enough for it to be a just judgment yet. He was patient. He was waiting. And man, those Amorites, they were bad at the time of Abraham. But God was patient enough so that 400 years passed. And the way sin works in a person or in a culture is that if sin is not checked, then sin grows and sin expands. And so we don't know fully how bad things got in the city of Jericho over those 400 years. We know from Leviticus and Deuteronomy that there was widespread sexual sin, there, were, there was child sacrifice, just to name a few of the, the things that were going on there. So it got very, very bad. But ultimately what made this the time for judgment, we can't say for sure. I mean, maybe 
God knew that their hearts were irreparably hard at this point and that the city would never turn to righteousness. Maybe each generation was becoming more and more wicked and also more and more powerful. And so to prevent them from doing all the damage that they could do to the rest of the world, they had to be judged and taken out now. Maybe this judgment here prevented far more suffering because of this conquest. But it's important to realize that this was God judging and God judging justly. He'd been patient. And if God said now is the time for these people to be taken out, we can trust that God is just. I know we tend to second guess that. We say that it couldn't have been just, but God said that now after 400 years of waiting, it was time. And Israel was not just marauding and and taking out the city. They were being used by God as an imperfect tool for judgment on really wicked people. Dale Ralph Davis, one commentator, he wrote, the conquest is not a bunch of land-hungry marauders wiping out, at the behest of their vicious God, hundreds of innocent, God-fearing folks. So this is not a genocide of, of the innocent. This is the storming of a wicked city. And so the question we need to ask as we read through the Old Testament is not, is this a nice thing that God does? The question we should ask is, is this a just thing that God does? Because God is always just, but doesn't always look nice. Because judgment is ugly. Davis goes on, he says, the conquest is not gross injustice, but the highest and most patient justice. I think it's also important to realize that Jericho could have avoided this fate. We won't turn there now, but back in Deuteronomy chapter 20, when God was giving his people instructions for taking the land, he told them that when they came to these walled cities, they should offer them terms of peace. And if they opened up their gates to them, then they wouldn't be wiped out. They could become part of what God was doing in the world as opposed to being opposed to it. But here they get to Jericho, and the city's walls are closed. The gates are closed. It's fortified. It's shut up. There's no going in or out. They are not responding to God here. If you remember from a few chapters ago, Rahab said everybody in the city knew what God had done through his people. Everybody knew God was blessing his people. Everybody knew God was just and was about to judge them. But instead of responding to that and repenting and turning to God, they dug in. You even see it with the king of Jericho. These spies come into Rahab's house and the king of Jericho seeks out those spies not to go and say, what do we need to do to turn to God? But because he wants to just take out those spies. They're resistant to the very end, to the work that God is doing. We also know that God would have been merciful because Rahab, who's just as evil as anybody else in their city, she responds by faith to God and she receives mercy. Verse 17 says that they were careful to spare her. So real mercy was offered. Another thing to realize is that God does judge sin justly. We tend to read this, and because we kind of put God in the hot seat when we read the scripture, we say, how could God order this? I mean, surely their sin wasn't that bad. But if we read from the perspective of those who trust and love the Lord, then we read the story and we say, wow, sin really is so bad that it deserves this. I mean, of course God isn't being unjust, and for it to be just, to bring about this much destruction because of sin, 
then our sin must really be that bad. And God's holiness must really be that offended. Also, let's not make the mistake of thinking that this was Old Testament God and that he's somehow other and different than New Testament God. The Bible says again and again of God that he does not change. That he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. James chapter 1 verse 17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. You see God being the same all throughout Scripture. I mean, one of the reasons that he appeared to Moses and told him, take off your sandals where you're standing is holy ground. And then to Joshua and said, take off your sandals where you're standing is holy ground. It's to show that despite everything in the world changing and everything shaking, God remains the same. Old Testament God and New Testament God, they're the same guy. There's been no change in his character. Now, certainly in Christ, we see more aspects of his character than we would have if we only had the Old Testament. Christ is the most full and perfect revelation of God. But that revelation never cancels out other things that God has revealed about himself. It doesn't change any of the previous revelation. So we don't pit Old Testament God against New Testament God as if Old Testament God was like the grumpy God who carried out judgment and New Testament God just wants a hug. Like these are not different gods. It's the same God and we see different facets of his character, but he is always holy. He always hates sin and he judges justly. I mean, Jesus himself warned about the judgment of God. He didn't say, man, I'm glad that's not a thing anymore now that we're in the New Testament. Like, he actually talked about the day when God would come and separate the sheep and the goats and there would be eternal judgment. And so we're supposed to read about the fall of Jericho and think, wow, what we shouldn't think is, I don't think they deserve that. Well, we trust that God judges judges justly. We also shouldn't read it and think, well, I'm glad God has changed because he hasn't. We should read it and think, wow, I deserve that. And maybe I don't think I do, because I, I compare myself to other people. And you know, I'm you know, a bad guy, I'm just not badder than the next guy, and so, so I think I don't really deserve that. I'm kind of like the fish that doesn't know that he's wet because it's all he's ever known. Like we don't think that we're, we're deserving of God's wrath, but by telling us the story of the city of Jericho, God is saying, sin is that bad. God is that holy. And there is judgment for sin. There is wrath in God. But also we know that it is wrath that's driven by love. The wrath of God against sin isn't God just being arbitrary and cruel. This isn't here some meaningless genocide. This is a reflection of God's perfect justice and holiness and God's love for goodness. Chesterton said that the true soldier fights not because he hates what's in front of him, but because he loves what's behind him. And God's love for what is good and right is so strong that he fights wickedness with a fierce wrath. Most of us can relate. Like, if we've got kids, we probably know what this is like. I hate the things that would hurt my kids because I love my kids. 
Because God loves, he hates the sin that destroys. But this story is not only a story of wrath. Because again and again, all throughout this story, our attention is drawn to the mercy that's shown to Rahab. We already saw it in the instructions in verse 17, but then we keep reading. Verse 21, it says, Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her, and they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But again, but Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she's lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time saying, cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was in the land. So there was judgment on the city, but there was mercy on Rahab. It wasn't because she was better than those people in Jericho. She wasn't less deserving of wrath for her sin. But in Hebrews 11, it says that she responded by faith to God when she hid those spies. And because she believed God and that was proven as her faith resulted in action, she was saved. And this is the promise that God offers again and again in the scripture, that though he is just, though his wrath against our sin is just, though there is punishment for sin, he has made a way for us to be forgiven. He's made a way for us to receive mercy. That whoever turns to him and believes will be saved from the wrath that they deserve. By repentant faith, Rahab reached for the grace of God and it was gladly given to her. It can be assumed that that same grace shown to Rahab and her household was available to everybody else in Jericho who wanted it. And the same is true today that whosoever will may come and find mercy in Christ. God delights to show mercy. We know this because of the cross. I mean, we read this story of the conquest of Jericho and certainly we, we wonder, did they really deserve this? But when we look at Jesus on the cross, we're absolutely sure he didn't deserve that. But we did. And because God is just, sin had to be punished, so Jesus hung on that cross and took the punishment. But because God is love, he offered this way of grace to us that he offered to Rahab, to turn to him and believe and be saved. God offered mercy to the cities that would open up their gates to him and surrender to him, that would no longer be opposed to what God is doing in the world, but to surrender to him. And the call and the invitation to us today is to not shut up our gates to not dig in, to not fight against him and face his wrath, but to open and receive his mercy. It will be there. He offers it to us in Christ. That though our sins deserve wrath, Jesus died to take that wrath. 
that we deserved hell, he took it on himself when he went to that cross so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And if we've turned to him, we now realign ourselves with him and make him our God, where he is our ultimate. Where he's a God, not that we get on our side to help us do what we were already doing, but a God to worship and to bow down before. We might be tempted to try to, to save ourselves, to fix ourselves. We, we recognize that we do deserve God's punishment. We think, okay, maybe I can fix it by working real hard, by doing religious things, making myself moral. That'll get me in the door with God. That'll get me there. But the whole point of this story is that God saves those who trust him. This Israelite army, they trusted God. They walked around with the Ark of the Covenant. They blew the horns. They didn't try to save themselves. They didn't try to win this victory. They didn't try to fight the battle of Jericho to make the walls come tumbling down. They just believed God by faith, and by faith those walls fell. So don't try to fix your own moral problem. Don't try to fix the problem that you have between you and God on your own. Trust that Jesus did it for you. Trust by faith that he died, was buried, and rose again so that you could have everlasting life. Let's pray. Well, Father, this is a hard passage, and it's one that brings so many questions to our minds, and I know that those questions are still not all answered in all of our minds, but we thank you that you are a righteous judge. You have the right to define goodness and fairness in your universe. We can trust you far more than we could ever trust our own sense of justice. We thank you for your patience with us, as we wrestle with these things. But as we do, Lord, we have to confess that, that often we speak hard words against you in our hearts. If we examined every thought that flows through our minds, we'd discover all kinds of grumblings and accusations against you. So have mercy on us. Forgive us for our lack of belief. We know that if you were to give us what we truly deserve, we couldn't endure it for a moment. So we thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you poured out on him the punishment that we deserve and he endured it fully for us. Thank you that he lived the perfect life which earned your pleasure and then he paid the awful debt of all of our sin. Thank you that our holy judge was judged in our place and now we stand in his goodness with all the righteousness that we need. Thank you for looking on his life and on his death and pardoning us. And Holy Spirit, we come to you for help because we are weak and forgetful. The drift of our thoughts is always away from you. We need your help in order to think clearly about Christ and remember him. We need you to melt our hard hearts with gratitude because we can't do that for ourselves. We need you to bring us to repentance over and over again. And when our souls rise up and start to grumble and accuse you of injustice, we pray that you would humble us with the remembrance of Christ's unbelievable love and patience with us. And fill us with the right response and a desire to worship and adore him. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.